people. Welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. This is episode number 393 with Seth Swerzik from Hornady. We speak with Seth about a variety of topics as it relates to ballistics. We particularly dive in on big ideas that bigger isn't always better, faster isn't always better, and why sometimes you should just think backwards about ballistics. And that will make more sense as we get into this conversation. I have personally been enjoying the podcasts, uh, which are available in a podcast app and also on YouTube that Hornady has been putting out with Seth and Jaden and some of the other guys from their team. And it reignited my interest in getting them on our show as well. So this week we have Seth on. Next week, we're going to share an episode with Jaden that is awesome. Jaden is a very experienced ballistician, and I was curious to speak with him about what are the things that keep him up at night? What aspects of ballistics does he not fully understand or can't fully explain even after his years of experience and research? But today, again, with Seth, we talk about those variety of topics as it relates to speed, BC, bullet performance, terminal performance, cartridge selection, and a whole lot more. I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. As always, if you have questions for us, you can send those to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message. At any time, if you think of a question during this conversation, hit pause and send that question over to us. Right now, though, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Seth. Well, Seth, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I'm excited to have you, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's been a few years. We had Jaden from Hornady on the podcast and actually just recently recorded another one with Jaden. Um, and I'm not sure which episode will come out first, that recent one with Jaden or this one with you. Um, but man, excited to kind of re-engage with you guys. And a lot of that um, has been spurred on by me listening to your podcast, the Hornady podcast. And I've enjoyed that. And it's been beneficial for me personally. And it was like, man, I, I should re-engage those guys on some kind of some topics and interests and questions that I have and uh, hear from you guys on the expert side of things. But to start with, Seth, what is some introduction and background for you? Uh, feel free to share personally, sure. but also just with Hornady, because I think one thing that is unique with your history with Hornady is you've had different roles and kind of seen different sides of the business. And I feel like it probably gives you a pretty well-rounded perspective. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for the kind words about our podcast. You know, that's something that we've really enjoyed doing over the last year and had no idea what we were doing when we got started. We just got the green light to start a podcast and kind of started, you know, blind leading the blind, figuring it out. So it's been good to put out some information that people enjoy. And as uh, far as my personal life here at Hornady, yeah, I started, I've been with the company now uh, almost exactly 10 years. In just a few days, it'll be the 10-year mark. Uh, and I started as a technical representative, and that was such a unique position. So for those that don't know, you can call Hornady Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and we've got a team of technical reps that will talk to you about technical things, right? Reloading processes, uh, bullet selection, 
uh, reloading techniques, the long range shooting stuff, twist rate recommendations, you name it. Um, we also handle the customer service side of things. So you get a lot of customer interaction and you're forced to learn a little bit about everything. So, you know, you know then they encouraged us to participate in PRS matches and USPSA and three gun and F class or bench rest, if that was your thing. And you learned shot shell reloading and you really quickly became an expert on all Hornady products. And that's where I started. I uh, worked up there for five years or so, and uh, it was just an awesome experience. I ended up taking about 30,000 phone calls over the course of, uh, of those, those years. And like I said, just learned a lot. And when our senior ballistic scientist, Dave Emery, you know, he's kind of a living legend in the ballistics world. He retired from our company in 2016 and his understudy, who's now our senior ballistician that you mentioned, Jaden Quinlan, he needed some assistance uh, in the world of ballistics. And that's not something that you can outsource easily. You know, there's not a ton of places to go get good uh, education on uh, small cal internal and external ballistics. And uh, luckily, I had shown one, just a, just an interest and a passion for those things. And two, um, you know, just kind of a, a natural affinity uh, for doing and understanding a lot of those theories and practices. And so I made uh, the jump from being a technical rep uh, over to being a, a ballistician. And I worked with Jaden uh, in the ballistic engineering area for several years. And man, you want to talk about the coolest job in the world, right? That's uh, that was, man, it was fun. We had the Doppler radar and uh, inside Hornady, there's a, a group that we call the ballistic development group. And it's, you know, it's a kind of an assemblage of engineers and tech people and uh, uh, you know, some of the marketeers like me now. And uh, we really do a lot of the new product development and research and development. Well, getting to do new product R and D with not an infinite budget, but you know, a lot of resources. God, it was fun. And uh, did that for a while, and that was just super awesome. Really humbled to work with Jaden, who's who's a, an incredibly smart and talented guy. And then I kind of got recruited to come to the marketing side of the house. Um, I, I have formal education uh, by way of a business degree. I have a you know just a four year degree in business, and uh, had never worked in anything business or marketing related. But uh, I had that deep technical background, and that's something that the Hornady's, Jason Hornady specifically, wanted in this role because now I act as the liaison between outdoor writers and magazine writers and blog writers and some of the TV shows and some of the YouTube and social media stuff and certainly podcasts. I'm the liaison between those outlets and Hornady products, and it's great to have someone with a technical background um, to to channel that stuff. So that's my long and short of 10 years here at Hornady. It's been a fun ride. That's great. When you were working with Jaden on that ballistics development, what what's an example of some of the projects that you were involved with at that time? So in the years that I was involved in, it was right at the tail end. So I, I didn't do a ton of the initial development, but a lot of testing with the 6.5 and the 300 PRC cartridges um, assisted in the six millimeter arc uh, cartridge development. Uh, the A-tip bullets was a project Jaden and I worked on. The new CX bullets, um, those are, and obviously the 7PRC is is kind of my 
my baby, if you will. Uh, and then there's some other projects that aren't quite as sexy uh, or don't quite relate to hunt, hunting the backcountry, but uh, monolithic handgun bullets, so our handgun hunter line of ammunition and those bullets, the subsonic line of ammo and those projectiles, and uh, did a lot of load development work on new cartridges that the industry released, like the 350 Legend and stuff like that. Well, today, um, just to lay groundwork, we kind of want to talk a bit about muzzle velocity and why faster isn't always better. And this is a, a big topic we can tackle from a bunch of different angles and talk about in a bunch of different ways, and we'll get there. Um, but just kind of want to talk about that partially because I don't, there's obviously so many different schools of thought, but one thing that's been consistent among hunters over the decades, I think, is bigger, better, faster, right? Like, oh, give yeah. me the biggest speed, the heaviest bullet at the fastest speed. Give me the magnum. Give me everything. Um, I don't care what the consequences are. And there's a case <laughs> for that, but I do want to sure. talk about the consequences of it. But I think maybe a good place to start is if we if we back up in time and just think about history there was a case to be made for faster and flatter is better. Oh yeah, and, for sure. But just now I don't say it doesn't matter, but it's not as important with things like razor, laser range finders and things like that um, where it's not as critical these days. That would be one example. Another example would be that bullet design um, mm -hmm. bullets are so much more efficient from a BC perspective um, that they remain more efficient, even if they don't start as fast. That's like another example, but yeah, just some groundwork. Like, where do you want to talk about that? Because I think history and a little bit of those topics is maybe a good place to start with. Well, I agree that there's there's the history is important to look at, and I think it's it's very valid back in the day to to chase those numbers and to chase that velocity because laser rangefinders. I mean, that's a an advent that became consumable for the normal working man to you know to go out and buy one within our hunting lifetime. I can remember being, gosh, I think I was 12 years old or maybe 13 years old when my dad got his first laser rangefinder for bow hunting. And it had a maximum range of like maybe 200 yards. That wasn't that long ago. And so when range estimation became easier and more reliable, that's when we started to shift away from the need to be faster and flatter. But the reality is that wasn't always the case. You know, there was a long time where if you wanted to arrange something, uh, there was not a field expedient way to do so. Even, you know, using milliradian or uh, MOA based reticles wasn't that fast. And so you wanted to have that forgiveness as if you estimated it to be three football fields, but it was actually three and a half football fields away. Uh, could you still hit what you were aiming at? And that was definitely the the prevailing winds that that precipitated cartridges like all of the Weatherby cartridges, the 300 wind mag, 264, you know, the the seven mag, and then uh, even still, as we got into the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, you see that with you know the Remington Ultra mags and the short action Ultra mags. It was basically to hit what you're aiming at when you don't know how far away it is and plenty of validity to that. And that might still be the case for some people, but man, you nailed it when you said, you know, with what we've learned today with the accuracy of the Langer range finder, the accuracy of optics, 
uh, scopes, turrets. And then what we've learned from a terminal ballistic standpoint on how bullets work. And we're now able to tailor bullets and their structure to work best at certain velocity regimes. And because of that, now you can get away from some of the negative things that we can talk about when your pursuit is only a, a trip down the drag strip. You can get away from some of those things and focus more on balance and efficiency. And uh, there's just a better way to do it now. The bullet piece I want to get to, uh, I want people to know that that's coming. I want to spend some time on that mm -hmm. um, and talk about terminal performance and the characteristics of bullets at different muzzle velocities, or I should say impact velocities at that point. Um, but before we get to that, what are, what's some of the cost of like chasing crazy speeds? Um, yeah. Whether that's in like big magnums and you're looking at increased recoil, decreased shootability. I could think of, you know, these big burners or barrel burners and barrel life. You're just flat out shooting more powder, right? Like component yeah. cost, consistency. Like what are some of the downsides of chasing that big speed? Sure. You, you hit a lot of them right there. And the order of the list of things you just said is really personal, you know, personal choice, right? So for me, uh, the style of shooting that I do, the way in which I hunt, one of the things that I don't like about chasing speed is the shootability and the recoil aspect. Um, when you do the calculation for rifle recoil, you know, some of the big factors are the amount of propellant used to obtain a given muzzle velocity. And that added recoil makes it harder to one, see your bullet while it's in the air. If you have to shoot something that's, you know, not super close up. Uh, and then two, spot your impact or spot your miss. And then three, that shootability and recoil is going to affect how you can address your rifle system from a compromised shooting position. You know, everybody wants to shoot stuff laying in the prone. I've shot more animals uh, from a tripod kneeling uh, than I have prone. And that that flexibility of shooting a moderately recoiling system compared to something that's a lot more of a handful can you know allow you to shoot from let's say a tripod or a tree stump or whatever and still spot your impact and still spot your miss uh, and still possibly see your bullet while it's in the air if, if it's a if it's a shot that's at a non-traditional distance so for me that one's absolutely huge and it is a direct correlation to powder burn right you're going to burn more powder you're going to have more recoil so for me that's a big one um, barrel life like you mentioned and that one, you know, for the world of hunting, maybe not super important for everybody. You know, if you get five or 800 rounds of barrel life, some people are like, that's okay. It's a hunting rifle. But for those of us that like to practice with the same tool we hunt with, that is a concern as well. Um, like you mentioned, the component cost, especially now. People, people think we were just at the Safari Club International show and they had come talk to us at the booth. And they seem to think that because we work here, everything's just for free. And I can assure you that's not the case. I buy powder, I buy primers and, uh, you know, primers have went up when I first got into it. Primers were two cents, three cents a piece, uh, for a federal two fifteen match or a two ten match. And now you're paying between nine and 12 cents a piece, usually on a primer. So that's gone up. The cost of propellant has gone up and your brass life, you know, brass is the most expensive part of that system when you're looking at your components and it's going to accelerate the the rate at which it it wears out and then one that is 
maybe not largely understood, and some people may not have seen this, and it may not be a blanket statement, but working in ballistics and shooting a lot of stuff in a pressure and velocity barrel where we're measuring pressure and and velocity, I've seen when you really stand on something, you're driving pressures up and you're cooking a lot of powder, especially when it gets more and more overbore, when you have a really big powder column, but a really small bore diameter, the consistency uh, is not always there. And some of that has to do with chamber and throat geometry. Uh, but for me, when you're working with these bigger magnums and you really start pressing on the throttle, um, they just lose some consistency and you don't see it all the time, but you see it some of the time, thus making it inconsistent. So you really nailed a lot of those topics. And, and, uh, like I said, they, each person will rank those in a different, you know, importance order, but gosh, for me, and the way it relates to backcountry hunting and, you know, front country, you know, day hunts where you're, you're not laying down prone most of the time, you know, you need to have a shootable system. You need to be able to determine where that bullet goes once it leaves the barrel and just an enjoyable shooting experience. You can develop bad habits with very heavy recoiling rifles with flinches and jerking the trigger and not following through. Um, it's just bad habits and you have a more shootable system. You can shoot it more and be comfortable and develop good habits. I'm super excited really to just jump to that terminal performance aspect of all this, just because it's like you said, I think people are chasing, chasing flat trajectory and also just have the assumption that you need a big, heavy bullet moving very fast to kill things. I'd, sure. I'd love to hear your guys' yeah. Yeah, studies on, on that. You know, I've been shooting a little six, five Creedmoor, 125 grain solid, copper bullet and last two years it's killed everything i've pointed it at like um yeah but i'd love to understand more of what you guys have researched on that yeah well you can definitely stand on a cartridge from a velocity standpoint such that you outrun your bullet's per performance window and you know from for a prudent hand loader or for somebody that's you know knowledgeable and doing a bunch of research you know you might be able to pick out the appropriate bullet for that, but not everybody's going to do that. And mm. with a traditional cup and core lead bullet, um, that's what the majority of hunting bullets are. Now there are a bunch of solid bullets out there. Obviously we have the CX and there's several others that are really good. But when you look at the vast majority of hunters still using a lead core bullet, there's only so much lead in the bullet. And as it impacts with really high rates of speed, that lead expands and flows. And if you think of the front of the bullet as expanding, that lead comes from somewhere, right? So it draws that lead core up out of the bullet jacket and you can separate your bullet and, and a bullet jacket, uh, jacket core separation in and of itself is not a indicative of a bullet failure, depending on the mechanism and where it happened. But if it happens within a few inches of penetration, because you're running a cup and core lead bullet at 3,400 feet per second, and you take a shot at 80 yards, um, that is, you know, that's not the right way to do things. There are, uh, if had you slowed that bullet down, you're going to get much better terminal performance and more consistent terminal performance at a wider array of ranges than if you just went for the speed. So you had a flat trajectory, but bullet design and application definitely comes into play there when you're starting to look at muzzle velocity. And that also goes the other way. It also goes for low impact velocity because, you know, bullets require velocity to work and you can, um, you can find yourself in a bad spot if you are making uninformed decisions on your bullet choice. Mm -hmm. Do 
do you guys and other manufacturers do a good job publishing like this bullet is ideally suited for this velocity? Sure. I think we do. Yeah. You know, a lot of that stuff's yeah. available online. A lot of it for the hand loader, um, not just pushing our product, but uh, the handbook of cartridge reloading, the Hornady handbook of cartridge reloading. We have those numbers published in that book. And like okay. I mentioned earlier with our technical staff, 800-338-3220 is the phone number. Extension three will take you to tech. Call them up and ask them and they'll tell you because, yeah. you know, we don't want to hide that information for sure. And that information, like I said, it's on our website. It's in the catalog. And maybe we could do a better job. Maybe some other manufacturers could too, but we want to get those numbers out there. And if you do have a question, just call us and ask, and we'll be happy to tell you. Yeah. I feel like you see, uh, you know, the the next long range bullet advertised and, and nowhere in there do they say, oh, by the way, you probably shouldn't shoot an animal at a hundred yards with this bullet because it's not going to perform well. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely both ends of the spectrum from close and far. You talk a little bit about the... Well, let's go here first. Is there an inverse relationship between bullets that are meant for kind of long range? And by that, I mean both. They're designed to more reliably expand at a lower impact velocity. That being one point. The second point being they're designed higher BC. And that can dictate their construction method and shape and, you know, terminal performance in a way because you're, you're going after that BC in the shape of the bullet. Sure. Is there an inverse relationship between those bullets meant for long range and high speed impacts in general? Right. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, we just kind of mentioned that, but like, I think it's important to understand that. I don't know. I, I feel like far too many people are just chasing like long range is this thing and high BC is what is best in all situations. And then not realizing like in all reality, some of those guys doing that, their most likely shot opportunity could be 60 yards, could be 120 yards. And then you pair that with a bullet and then this giant magnum. And sometimes it's a recipe for problems, especially if you're not careful with Shop placement, shop placement, shot selection. So mm -hmm. I know I just threw a lot at you, but can we kind of go deeper on that? Absolutely. Cause, well, and you're right. There is a, an inverse relationship in most cases between bullet design and muzzle velocity and, and subsequent shot distance in their performance, right? So a lot of it comes down to cup and core bullets. And so we'll start on the traditional end first because it does kind of change a little bit when you get into some non-traditional uh, bullet design. But on a traditional bullet, cup and core lead bullet, Yes, you have a, a very direct relationship there between how that bullet is going to perform and the velocity in which it impacts. And that, that is no more clearly evident than when you hunt with match bullets. And a match bullet's not just a match bullet because it shoots accurate. Match bullets that are cup and core design that have a lead core will generally have a very thin jacket at the bottom, on the side, up by the nose. They're typically, at least our bullets and then the competitor's bullets that we've purchased and sectioned and, and investigated and looked at, they have a very consistent jacket thickness that's very thin. You know, we're talking maybe 20 or 25 thousandths of an inch thick of jacket. So because there is no taper to that jacket, it's not super thick at the bottom. There's nothing mechanically uh, holding that bullet together. What you end up with is when you're chasing super high velocity uh, to flatten your trajectory and you take those close range shots because that jacket isn't supporting the lead that's flowing. And because the, the lead is flowing at such a rate, you're going to dramatically decrease 
your penetration. Now, sometimes that works well. I've seen a lot of animals, you know, you jump on YouTube and search any popular match bullet and hunting, and you'll find videos of, of them working awesome, just devastating terminal performance, just bang, flop. Typically, those are at extended range because the velocity's bled off and that bullet's still expanding rapidly. But at those close ranges, it is going to dramatically decrease your penetration. Now, if you get adequate penetration and that bullet blows up like a hand grenade, typically that temporary wound cavity will disrupt the central nervous system uh, with the electrical activity in the central nervous system, and you'll get them to go unconscious on the upon impact, and then they'll die subsequently after. But that's not always the case, and that's why we don't recommend hunting with hyper thin jacketed match bullets of ours or any Brian's variety where it starts to transition a little bit is when you get into some non-traditional bullet design. So a good example is our ELDX. The ELDX is a match accurate bullet. So we hold it to our match accuracy standard at the factory, but the difference in the jacket is huge. If you looked at two bullets that were sectioned in half, one an ELD match and one an ELDX, the jacket on the ELDX bullet is going to be substantially thicker, probably three times the thickness down at the bottom. And it will be about three times the thickness up on the sides on the bearing surface. And it will gradually taper to a very thin frontal uh, thickness. So what you get with that is it's thinner up front so that you can expand reliably as the range becomes extended and the velocity decays, but it's really thick in the bearing surface and towards the bottom so that at a higher velocity impact, that bullet opens up dramatically at first, but now the jacket is substantially thicker, so it will support the lead, and then we interlock that bullet, so we have a mechanical locking ring that gouges into the lead to help hold that bullet together. So that one, a little bit more forgiving on both ends of the spectrum, on the high velocity and the low velocity, and where things really transition is with non-traditional bullets, lead-free bullets like our CX. With some of our modern CX bullets, we will model the shape after a very heavy match bullet in that caliber. So you get the shape drag benefits of the, of the match bullets, but we make them out of that copper alloy. So now they have amazing terminal performance, uh, but they do require more velocity than a lead core bullet to expand. So um, you get the shape drag benefits, but you end up with typically two holes because those bullets will outpenetrate a lead core bullet nine times out of 10, and they will hold much greater weight retention, which will help in that penetration. So for a traditionally made bullet, that relationship between speed and terminal performance uh, is definitely there and definitely something to be noted. Uh, and the same thing, like I said, with those match bullets, which are paper thin. Uh, and again, why we don't recommend hunting with ours or anybody else's for that matter. Can you talk a little bit about situations on shot placement then yeah and, oh for sure as it relates to like say a closer impact um or sorry a higher yeah. velocity impact at a closer range sure well and yeah we, we uh, i try to when i'm doing any conversation like this i try to be very clear about that i'm talking about impact velocity uh, and not necessarily range because you start looking at these hyper magnums right these super magnums yeah. You know, it's not apples to apples at 300 yards when they are, you know, 500 foot per second faster than some cartridges. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that alone is a great point because there's so much conversation about cartridges and like comparing them. And at the end of the day, 
let's like pick a bullet, right? So like a 175 grain ELDX from a seven millimeter. Once that bullet has left the rifle, it doesn't know whether it came from a seven PRC or a seven rim mag or, you know, um, a 28 nozzler or a seven Psalm or what have you. It's the yeah. same projectile, just moving at a certain speed. The cartridge basically became irrelevant only in the sense that yes, the cartridge helped it achieve a muzzle velocity, but what you quote unquote can do with one cartridge is really all about the bullet and the impact velocity, right? And of course, that impact velocity is going to be different at different ranges based on the cartridge, right? Uh, but I always find it funny when people talk about how a cartridge did this, and it's like, well, no, the bullet did that at a certain impact velocity. It could have happened from different cartridges cartridges at different ranges. Absolutely. That's a very good point. And yeah, definitely something to be, like I said, I like to try to be clear with that. Um, regarding shot placement with high velocity impacts, man, you start taking shoulder blades, that can that can be a problem, especially when velocities are very, very high. You know, when your velocity hasn't decayed, time of flights are super short, uh, and you take a traditional lead core bullet, and then you try to drive it through a shoulder blade that can cause such dramatic and rapid expansion that it can limit your penetration. A lot of that's dependent on bullet construction. And I know we just talked about this, but when you look at match bullets that have no mechanical means of staying together, and then you take a 80 yard shot through the point of the shoulder of say an elk or something like that, you can really limit your penetration to the point where it's not even a lethal shot, uh, which is, you know, wild to think that you have this big high performing magnum and you just shot an elk at 80 yards, you know, you could have thrown a baseball that far, but you didn't make a lethal shot on the animal. And that's again, because of, by way of that bullet construction, um, where that can help you is at longer ranges where your velocity has decayed. Because again, I know you went over this with Jaden, but velocity makes bullets work and you need velocity to make them expand. And if you're nearing the bottom end of their expansion window, and then you take a shoulder blade that will help your upset. Um, so a lot of that goes to just being an educated hunter, knowing what you're using and what you're using it for and, and how they work. But yeah, you know, shot placement, when you're trying to break down shoulders at close range, high velocity, it can be a problem. Now it's not always a problem. And again, when you start getting into hunting specific bullets that have significant jacket taper that are much thicker uh, down in the bearing surface in the bottom of the bullet and have a mechanical link ring to hold them together, or perhaps are a bonded uh, variety that are, you know, molecular that are fused together for lack of a better term, welded, essentially uh, you could think of it as um, those will hold together and get through that shoulder blade with the high velocity. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some implication there on shot placement. So we talked a, a little bit before about how speed isn't free. And we talked about, you know, recoil and shootability, barrel life, component cost, consistency, et cetera. Another, another area I want to talk about speed, not being free is, as it relates to hand loading and guys chasing these speeds. And sometimes you see online guys saying they're getting speeds that it's like ridiculous for that cartridge and for that bullet. And speed isn't free in the sense that it always is coming with pressure. Yeah. Um, you don't get one without the other. You don't get one without the other. 
uh, and there is no like magic unicorn dust that turns, you know, this cartridge into some crazy hot rod without pressure. Yep. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and then kind of lead that into, you know, how that relates to Hornady with cartridge development? Like you can talk about the seven PRC if you'd like, but really, you know, pressure being a problem. One thing that hand loaders need to realize there are limitations there. And then two, your limitations as a manufacturer with both cartridge design and then factory ammunition and Mm -hmm. and the true pressure limitations of like SAMI regulations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that is definitely a a cost because there's no way for the end user to know what their pressure is. And, you know, the old fashioned, you know, look at the primer, you know, is it radius on the edges? Is your, you know, your firing pin starting to... uh, is that primer starting to flow around the firing pin aperture? You have a, you know, is your head stamp got a shiny spot from the ejector? Is there swipe? How'd the bolt feel when it opened? Those are all the traditional ways that a, you know, a hand loader would assess what pressure they're at. The problem with a lot of that now is a lot of guys running custom actions and a lot of guys running really, really high quality brass. And even the the what I'm going to call the normal brass that you would buy that when you're not paying $5 a stick for the brass, the process controls and the material is getting better and better and better. And so the brass quality is getting better and better and better. So those traditional signs of monitoring pressure don't occur as often or sometimes not at all. Uh, And I have seen that happen to folks where quote unquote, no signs of pressure and then five shots in, their bolt does not open anymore. Um, set the rifle in the freezer and, and tap it open with a mallet. You know, I've seen that happen. So there's definitely some implication there, some cost there. And the reason for that would be, again, the quality of the brass, the hardness of the brass is, is getting really, really good. And the, the tolerances in these custom actions, you just don't see primer flow into a firing pin aperture because things are so tight. Uh, you just don't see the the bolt opening being a problem again because that brass is a little bit harder you have more mechanical advantage with some of these nicer bolt designs so you don't see those um where it can really be a problem like you said is when you got guys that are turning cartridges that aren't that aren't capable of running super high velocity without super high pressure they're turning them into those velocity hogs and you're going to experience problems at some point, whether that be inconsistency, you know, or, or maybe as simple as your brass wears out quick. Maybe that's the case. And if that's the case, you avoided it, but you could also have some problems where you get big temperature swings and, you know, a load that was safe is now not. And you were working with the same material barrels and actions are made of the same steel brass is made of the same brass, right? So the real world is, you know, about 65,000 pounds is the highest you'll see a SAMI approved cartridge operate in. Now you can run cartridges at 68 to 70,000 pounds of pressure and experience quote unquote, no signs of pressure, but that doesn't mean that that pressure doesn't exist. And uh, that can definitely be a problem. Now for Hornady, we are a conforming member voluntarily to the SAMI standards. And because of that, uh, a cartridge like the Seven Psalm is a perfect example. So the Seven Psalm was originally released with a maximum cartridge overall length of 2.850, which in today's world is really short because most people that run a Seven Psalm 
are loading it out to 2.95 or three inches or you know maybe just a tear a hair over three inches and they're having custom chambers set up for that well for us because we conform to sammy and that's a sammy approved cartridge we have to load it short and we have to load it within its pressure limits and those hand loaders that have those custom guns they don't have to do that and so now they're looking at factory reloading data and it doesn't make sense because gosh you know factory loads are only doing 2800 or 2850 and i'm getting 3000 out of mine with again quote unquote no signs of pressure and they're just kind of in no man's land if you will and that might cost you just you know excessive component wear but it also might cost you some bigger problems you know on a hunt or some safety concerns uh, it's really yeah like i said there there is a cost to that and so when we design a cartridge like you mentioned about the 7PRC we definitely take that uh, into play we think about that holistically as far as when we design a cartridge because it's not just about speed at that point there's a lot of other factors that come into play you know and um that makes it maybe a hard sell to some people and we can talk specifically about the seven prc and how it compares to some other things on the market and and how for the layman they might look at it and go that doesn't even make sense why would you do that um but for us because we live in you know the real world, you have to make something that's safe to feed, function, and fire in the Ruger American, the same as it is in the $5,000 GA Precision, you know? The Sammy limitations, I think, are interesting. And you informed me more, but like to think of taking a new cartridge, like a 7PRC, where you guys have much more control, not over what Ruger is building, but at least on the specifications of what seven PRC is right from like exactly. a chamber dimensions and reamer perspective. Yeah. And knowing that it's going to be using modern components, for example, and then contrast that with like a 30 out six, right over the past a hundred years, how many rifles with how many different chambers and how many different platforms exist in a 30 out six. So, there's still a Sammy specification today for 30 out six, but I think it would be much more limiting because what you can do with it has to be compatible with a hundred years of history and unknown or more loosely defined like chambers and rifles and components and materials and et cetera. Right. So what are like, what's the advantage of a, to pick on seven PRC cause it's new, but like call it, a modern, still Sammy compliant cartridge, but the mm -hmm. difference between something completely modern versus something with a hundred years of history and kind of unknowns. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Uh, and and a, a prime example of this that really uh, tells this story, and it's a story I've told before on some platform, I can't remember, because uh, I've gone spellblind since then, but uh, uh, is the seven millimeter Remington Magnum compared to the seven PRC. That is absolutely a, a, a perfect uh, example because the, the seven mag was released in 1962, right? So we're whatever, 61 years uh, after that. So you've got 61 years of, of rifles being built and chambered and everything has to conform to the original Sammy specs. Well, the original Sammy specs don't call for, I think it's a nine and a quarter twist. And the original Sammy specs call for a length of 3.340. And the original Sammy specs call for a max average pressure of 59,000 pounds. 
So that limits us as a factory ammo producer of what bullets and what pressure and velocities we can get to fit feed and function in every rifle made for the last 61 years. So what I did, what a lot of people have done, because I'm late to this game, but what what a lot of people have done is you take the seven mag. Okay, well, I'm going to change the throat geometry up a little bit to make it just a little bit more precise. Okay, so you, you get a custom reamer with the uh, with different throat geometry. And I want to shoot the 175 ELDX, so I'm going to go with an eight twist or an eight and a half twist. So you get a custom, custom barrel ordered. And I want that 175 to do 3,000 feet per second, so I got to stoke that thing full of like 70 grains of Rotumbo. And pressure test that and it's 63,000 pounds. So you just exceeded the SAMI limitations in every single aspect. The only thing that you didn't is that the fact that that's a seven millimeter Remington MAM cartridge case, right? You got amazing performance and it took a custom uh, twist rate and a custom throat uh, to get that accomplished, right? And you got to seed it out. I didn't mention that. You got to seed it out a little further. You can't seed it 3.340. You got to seed that bullet out a little further so you don't chew up your powder capacity. So that works, but it is individual. You can do that with your setup, but a gun maker isn't going to make a gun with non-standard throat dimensions, crazy twist rates or anything like that because it, they're conforming members of SAMI as well. So when you introduce a cartridge like the 7PRC and what was kind of the precipitous to the 7PRC development, how can I get that level of performance that I just described from that seven mag, but make it so that any person can go to a store and buy a factory rifle and buy factory ammunition and put them together and get accuracy and performance that historically has taken a custom rifle with custom dimensions and a custom reamer and a custom barrel. That that's how you do it. And that's, you know, when you look at a lot of our cartridges, the 300 PRC compared to the 300 wind mag, a 6.5 PRC compared to a 6.5284, or the 7 PRC compared to a 7 millimeter Remington Magnum. You can do it that way. And that's why it's important is now everybody gets that level of performance by going to Sportsman's Warehouse and buying a Christensen Arms rifle or a Ruger or a Remington or whatever. You buy a factory off the shelf rifle with all the cool kid stuff that everybody was using custom components for previously. Now everybody can do it. And the factory ammunition and the factory rifles, they just blend well together. And you get really consistent performance across the inexpensive rifle to the super high-end custom rifle. Everything's kind of on a more even playing field, if that makes sense. does make sense. What? So I want to use 7PRC as an example of like you guys understanding velocity and just kind of continue this conversation on velocity terminal performance etc yeah as far as i understand it you obviously bullets like the 175 eldx and a seven millimeter existed before seven prc mm-hmm. right like i had been shooting them in a seven yep. psalm people have been shooting them in a bunch of cartridges i think there's also been times whether it's hornady or other manufacturers who are developing a cartridge and then developing a bullet for that I guess what I'm getting at is when you guys set out to develop 7PRC, these bullets already existed. You knew yep. what they were, how they performed. You knew what their ideal velocity is. So did you design 7PRC to achieve performance with that bullet and give yourself these, I don't want to say limitations on velocity, but yeah. why did you choose to not make it the super fast 
seven millimeter hot rod that is earth shattering and reaches speeds that no one has ever achieved before. Yeah. Decide to like settle in on like <laughs> this bullet exists. Like this is a sweet spot. This is where we're, we're going to develop a great cartridge for, if that makes yeah. sense. No, that absolutely makes sense. And for sure it was basically approached in that fashion. Right. So as with, with any project, it takes a village of people to get something done. So what I'm about to speak about, I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to take sole credit for for the seven PRC's existence because that's not the case. So I just wanted to lay that out there. But when you look at cartridges like the 28 nozzles, a great example, um, you have a really big powder capacity, right? Huge, right? Just massive powder capacity. And then you have a short overall length, right? It's 3.340 overall length, but you got this giant case. So now you, you have very little head height. You can't use the super cool bullet. So that kind of excluded our 175 ELDX and our 180 ELD match. There's not enough room in a standard Sammy length with that case to use our really good bullets. And uh, so that was one thing was we know we, ha- we want to focus on these projectiles because ballistically they're, they're so awesome right? We've always been a fan of letting the efficiency of the bullet do the work. Um, we've got these really efficient bullets. Let's make them work for us. How can we make them do the work without us having to make them go really, really, really fast? So again, that was uh, compared to the 28 Nosler. And then also the 28 Nosler got a one and nine twist rate, which we also can't shoot our 175 ELDX and 180 ELD match. So then you're at the drawing board knowing we have these awesome bullets that people have been using in the custom world for a long time. We need to develop a cartridge around them. So first of all, it has to fit in a case properly. When I say properly, I mean typically the base of the boat tail bearing surface junction of the bullet. We want that situated somewhere around the shoulder neck or shoulder body junction of the cartridge case. So we're not pushing it all the way in and and taking up usable powder capacity, right? So we're going to design a case around that. And how we isolated 3000 feet per second was when I was doing the initial developments of this cartridge, this is not super scientific, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. Anyway, what I found in doing a lot of pressure and velocity testing with other cartridges was that nothing good happened after 3,000 feet per second. What I mean by that was we could get a lot of cartridges up to about 3,000 feet per second. To get them to, say, 3,100, we had to dramatically increase the amount of powder to get that velocity. And once we did that, we, we found that it wasn't very consistent. So uh, for an example, when you compare the 7PRC to a 28 Nosler, 28 Nosler, their factory ammo is doing 3150 with their 175 AccuBond. Our factory ammo with our 175 is doing 3,000 feet per second. The difference is less than 5% in velocity. To get that 5% velocity increase, you have to increase powder charge by more than 15%. So it didn't really pencil out. You have to burn 15% more propellant to get 5% more velocity. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. 
And because of the inconsistencies that we see when you really stand on a cartridge, that's how we isolated that 3,000 feet per second window. And we know that at much faster than that, you're going to have problems at very, very high velocity, close range impacts. We're at 3,000 feet per second, our 175 ELDX, you know, 100 yard shot, you're going to get outstanding terminal performance out of that. Likewise, it's so incredibly efficient you're going to get amazing performance downrange at distances that that nobody is actually hunting at. So within all usable hunting distances, we know that 175 ELDX is going to shine and all you have to hit is 2,900 to 3,000 feet per second at the muzzle to get all of that. And to be quite frank, you can go way slower than that because of the efficiency of the bullet. So when we were doing the 7PRC, that's how we isolated the velocity. And then how we design a cartridge as a whole we isolate what bullets we need to do the job. We already isolated that. Okay, what twist rates do they need? Well, we recommend an eight twist with the seven PRC so you can take advantage of every big giant seven millimeter bullet on the market. Then we design the chamber and the throat dimensions primarily around the bullets we want to use. And that helps them be very forgivingly accurate. And we set those dimensions and tolerances very specifically, and that is why the inexpensive rifle and the high-end rifle all shoot really well, is because we set the throat geometry up to lend itself to accuracy with the bullets we've already predetermined. Then we'll design the cartridge case behind that, right? So that's kind of our, our method of which we do things. And then this one, it just penciled out perfectly such that we could have a cartridge case that when a bullet is seated appropriately with the right twist rate, it would hold somewhere between 65 and 70 grains of powder was our kind of initial uh, calculations and achieve 3000 feet per second from a 24 inch barrel. And that's how the seven PRC really laid out and, and came to be, and it works amazing. Also, one other thing is when we designed this cartridge looking for efficiency, we did all of our testing out of a 24 inch barrel. Most other large magnums, like I mentioned, the 28 nozzler, a lot of that testing and a lot of those velocities were achieved from a 26 inch barrel. So you're going to get, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60 feet per second, more velocity out of a 26 than you would a 24. Um, so I know I just rambled on there quite a bit about the seven PRC's development and I'm not bagging on the 28 nozzler. We've got friends at nozzler, Jason and, and John nozzler hunt together. Uh, it's just a very... Like I said, when you look at a 5% velocity increase, but you're taking a 15% powder charge increase, just not the right way to do things. And that's what we address with the 7PRC. I think that's a helpful like context because it it reflects what I feel like I've learned over the last five plus years. And, sure. and knowing, like right now today, if I were to start from scratch and wanted to pick out a new rifle on a brand new cartridge... I wouldn't start with the cartridge, uh, which I feel like so many people do. I would really think through things backwards and let it lead me to a cartridge. And by that, I mean, like, what caliber family do I want to be in? First of all, like, do I want a seven millimeter? Do I want a 30 cal? Do I want a six five? What have you? Mm -hmm. Once I picked that, I would kind of narrow down really the weight class, um, especially these days of the bullet that I wanted to shoot, because there's so many options these days. Um, and that can be influenced by obviously what barrel twist I would then have as well with that weight class and really then say, okay, I have this 
call it seven millimeter. I want to shoot, you know, 160 to 175 grain bullet. I'd be looking at what distances I'm truly going to be shooting at. Like, what is my max that I want terminal performance for? Um, figure out what that velocity window would be downrange and then work backwards to figure out, okay, well, if I want that velocity at that distance, what does my muzzle velocity need to be? Um, and then look at like, if I were doing something more custom, do I want like what barrel length then do I want? And it's only until I have all of that information that I can really look at, okay, well, what cartridge does that? What cartridge pushes this bullet at a certain muzzle velocity to get me downrange at a certain speed at a certain barrel length and twist rate. And then it gives me my cartridge options, right? So I feel like it's overwhelming to just start with cartridges until you really narrow down, like, what is your actual objective here? That's exactly right. I I have some comments on that. Before we get there, I, I want to go back real quick when I was talking about uh, 5% velocity increase needed 15% more powder. Uh, when you do the calculations, that increases your recoil 28%. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, holy crap. Yeah, I wanted to finish that statement out because, yeah, you're okay, 15% more powder, whatever. Well, you're getting 28% more recoil compared to the 7PRC with the 175 doing 3,000. So, uh, that definitely changes things. But uh, to, to comment on what you said, Mark, that is absolutely perfect. You select the first things first, which is what is my job that I'm trying to accomplish? Okay, well, here's the job. What bullet diameters are going to do this job? What weight of bullets? What bullet construction? How far? And you just worked it backwards. That is a very well-informed and pragmatic way to do things because it will help isolate the best platform versus some traditional thinking, which is, oh, I have to drive a nail. Better get a 28 ounce framing hammer, right? You know, like maybe you don't need the biggest hammer. You know, there's a lot more appropriate tool for that job. And when you do it in that backwards pattern, it helps you identify your needs specifically versus you might gloss over some of those needs and you might accidentally end up choosing a cartridge that has a significant amount of recoil and it makes shooting from a kneeling position or off a tripod really, really difficult. Now you're not spotting shots. And had you done it in a little bit more pragmatic way, you could end up with a cartridge bullet combination that fit exactly what you're doing a little bit better. Going back to recoil real quick, since you just mentioned it to me, it, it always made sense. Like, okay, if it doesn't matter what the cartridge is, if the, you know, the same hundred and, you know, 43 grain ELDX, right? Like if it's going the same velocity out of two different cartridges, should recoil not be near identical? Uh, it depends because the charge weight of powder required to achieve that velocity, um, all things equal, you know, like uh, uh, rifle weight. Uh, if you had mm -hmm. the exact same rifle and one took 10 grains more propellant, but achieved the same velocity, then that 10 grains more propellant would create more uh, rearward energy. So it's, it's a, yeah, the, the powder load is a big part of that equation. It, it is. Yeah, it is a part of it. If you go to sammy.org, S-A-A-M-I, um, that uh, they, they have a recoil calculation formula there that you can do. Oh, okay. Likewise, cool. you can, if you just jump online and hit, you know, type in like 
rifle recoil calculator. There are some calculators out there that you just put in the weight of your rifle, muzzle velocity, weight of the bullet, and charge weight. And it'll, I'm not sure under the hood what kind of formula they're running, but that'll give you a really good idea mm. as well. So that, yeah, that charge weight, that makes sense to me. Cause when I, I've got a, my right shoulder is just jacked up from um, separating it when I was in high school. And oh, that's man. why I've got, I've got to shoot like a really light recoiling rifle. Sure. Um, anything more than that just kills me. So I'm always recent. Like for me, it's the huge part of the equation is what is the recoil on this thing? And the, it's, it's not been, it's not very easy information to attain. You see, you know, certain stats out there, but that doesn't quite make sense across everything that I've researched. Yeah. Well, and, and what a great time to be a rifleman right now, because with different bullets out there, you can choose a moderate recoiling rifle system and tailor your bullet to exactly what you're trying to do. And you really don't have to sacrifice any terminal performance or any range performance as far as shot distance goes when you have so many bullet options that are out there now. So uh, definitely a good time to, to be part of the part of the world here. I'll have to go check out that Sammy website and see, play with yeah, some calculations. Yeah. Ton of resources out there. Uh, Sammy.org is not the world's friendliest website. So uh, it <laughs> might be, might be easier to just Google search rifle recoil calculator and, and use one of those that, that does the calculation for you. Man, covered so much. That was super helpful. Um, if I just come back to the big picture, Seth, and say optimal vo- muzzle velocity, why faster isn't always better. Is there mm-hmm. anything, like any thoughts that come to mind that we didn't cover? No, I mean, that that really sums it up with modern range finders, modern scopes with good turrets, with the best projectiles the world has ever seen. There's no reason to decrease your shootability and increase your chances of inconsistent velocity and dispersion and component wear uh, and and even bring into play some terminal performance concerns by just chasing hyper fast and flat. You know, there's still a world where that's applicable. You know, I think about night hunting predators, for example, coyote hunting at night with thermal. Yeah, it's great to have a small caliber that's doing the speed of sound uh, because range estimation at night through thermal or night vision is very, very hard. Um, so there, there's still a world for it, but as it relates to medium and big game hunting, there's really no reason to, to chase that anymore. And the intangible is the better shooting system. You're just naturally going to have an affinity to shoot those guns more often. And, you know, that will have a direct impact on your success in the field when you're so comfortable with your rifle and it feels like an extension of your hands. Uh, when you go to make that, that shot, you know, you've already shot your rifle. You've been shooting it all summer at all kinds of ranges. It's so comfortable by the time you get an animal in front of you. It's the confidence that that instills is, is very, very tangible. But the fact that you're just so comfortable with the rifle, you didn't even know it happened. Uh, that's kind of the intangible part. So I think we really covered it pretty well, at least as far as, as far as I can tell. And like I said, the shootability to me and recoil management is one of my big concerns. And likewise, seeing it on the internal ballistic side where we load ammo, this is just a, a quick, uh, tangential convo here real quick but when we load ammo you know we pressure and velocity test it throughout its entire production life so if we load a hundred thousand rounds we test it 
all, you know, I don't know the interval on all the ammo, but we tested quite a bit. And when you have a cartridge that has a small bore diameter and a really large payload capacity, uh, keeping it very consistent is very hard. So if you want to make a thousand rounds of really good ammo, that's easy to do. If you want to load 5,000 boxes of 20 and make it all really good, those cartridges are very finicky. And uh, uh, that's why we design cartridges the way we do. And as a hand loader, you can, you can put those same practices into place. If you don't stand on a cartridge and drive it to the absolute limit, you'll get more consistent performance, longer component life, a better shooting system. And that load is going to work for you from minus 20 degrees to 120 degrees. It's just going to be very consistent. Now, as BC, oh, so the, the only part of this equation, right, is, is wind drift, right? If you're, yeah. you're slowing down the bullet, is it is it linear? I mean, if I'm looking at is wind drift and bullet drop, is that always going to be, it should just be a one-to-one ratio, right? Well, it's definitely going to change with your velocity, how much it changes is up for debate because it's not going to be as much as you would think. Um, you know, even at long ranges, you know, like 800 yards or something by dropping your cartridge 200 feet per second, it's not going to be huge. Now each rifle combination is going to be different. Um, but it, like I said, it's not going to be the, in, in my opinion, it's not going to be huge. Um, you mm-hmm. know, look at like a 175 ELDX, for example, 2950 to 2750 the difference in wind drift at at uh let's say a thousand yards it might be a tenth of a mil right it's Mm. it's going to be a three inches or something along those lines it's not going to be huge um and the bullet drop's not going to change that much either you know like i said those super efficient bullet designs are less temperamental as far as launch velocity goes because the efficiency of the bullet's going to make that bullet hold on to its velocity longer. Yeah. Just to elaborate on that, I was I've been shooting a seven psalm for a couple of years and recently went down to an 18 inch barrel and running that 175 ELDX uh I should end up right around like 2775 without pushing it too hard. Yeah, in that, that short barrel. Right. And it's still amazing to me what that bullet is capable of downrange when it starts at quote unquote only 2775. It's ridiculous. Yep. You let the efficiency of the bullet do the work and you know, a 175 at 2775, especially at altitude, you know, where you guys are hunting four to 10,000 feet or higher, yeah. those efficient bullets, they're going to hang on to that velocity. You're going to have a much more ergonomic rifle system. I'm guessing you're shooting suppressed with that barrel length. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to be a super handy system altogether. And uh, again, that's going to make it more natural to shoot. And you're not really sacrificing any range performance. For me personally, I my 7PRC is a 20-inch barrel. What type of speeds are you getting then with the PRC? My factory precision hunter uh, lot number that I'm running right now is doing 2910 at the muzzle from a 20. Wow. That's awesome. Yep. Shooting at Thunder Beast Ultra 5. And it's just so handy. So light, uh, so packable, and yet the terminal performance is far exceeds my ability to shoot as far as ranges are concerned. So it's definitely a nice system there. And that's not just 7PRC. Obviously, this applies to any cartridge. Well, thanks for the time, Seth. Uh, Before we let you go, 
tell us where to get the Hornady podcast for listeners who are interested in more discussions like this. Uh, mention the hotline or whatever you call it. I call it the hotline again, but yeah. the number for tech support, kind of all that stuff. If sure. people want to get in contact with Hornady or learn more. Yeah. As far as the podcast goes, it's just the Hornady podcast and that's available anywhere you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify. We have it uploaded on YouTube. Um, and quite honestly, that's our most popular consumption is on YouTube. We've 4K cameras. We, you know, we we set this up with with good video, good audio quality. So jump on the Hornady YouTube page. Uh, and then as far as the the hotline, that's our technical team. And that uh, toll free number is 800-338-3220. And then press extension three when prompted. That'll bounce you right up to tech. And like I said, those guys all hunt, all shoot, most shoot competitively. They all reload. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge up there that's free of charge just give us a call well there you have it guys check out those resources from hornady and be sure to tune in to our next episode which will be with Jaden from hornady as well you can make sure you always receive future episodes from this podcast by making sure you hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app And as always you can find all episodes at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast You can search by category or keyword or topic on that webpage and look at all of the hundreds of episodes in our podcast archive. Once again, if you have any questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message and we'll talk to you soon.